Hello again, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ. The lesson that you are about to hear comes from another one of our second Sunday night question and answer sessions. We're going to be looking at two completely different questions. One is about the use of the term forever in reference to Abraham's covenant. The other one is about an issue of giving and benevolence. I hope these questions are beneficial to you. Open your Bibles and follow along as we answer questions from God's people with God's book. As has become our custom on the second Sunday night of every month is question and answer service, questions that have been pre-submitted. If you have a question that you would like to be dealt with in our second Sunday night of the month service, feel free to email that to me and just make sure you indicate that it's a question that you want dealt with here or fill out one of the forms that's on the table in the back there in the foyer on your way out the door and drop that in the box outside my office, and as we have opportunity, we'll get to those. Please, if you can, put your name on it. That way, if I have any questions about your question, I can get with you on that, or if I think it would be better to give a private response, I'll be able to get back with you on that as well. We're going to be dealing with our questions and answers tonight. We're going to have time to deal with two completely separate and distinct questions. Last month, I think we were able to get three of them, and they all went together tonight. Two completely different questions. The very first question, very interesting. What is the length of time conveyed by forever and everlasting in verses such as Genesis chapter 13 and verse 15, chapter 17 and verse 7, and Ezra chapter 9 and verse 12? Here I've just got some excerpts from those verses. We're going to actually look at quite a few, so I'm going to put several verses up on the screen for you tonight. Genesis 13, 15 says, as God was talking to Abraham, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And then in Ezra chapter 9 and verse 12, as God was talking to them about not getting involved in foreign marriages, He told them that they needed to be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. That's what would happen if they kept themselves free from the idolatry that would come with marrying the foreign women. Now, if you've not ever studied this issue, you might think, why ask this question? But this is actually a very important question on several levels. First of all, there are groups such as the Jehovah's Witnesses and then the main false doctrine of premillennialism that actually hone in on the use of this word forever in the Old Testament in order to support some of their doctrines. The Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that the world will remain literally, eternally, and only 144,000 will go to heaven and the rest of us will stay here on the earth. We'll hone in on the words forever as it talks about the earth and, and various things. And then the premillennialists, of course, will look at passages like this and talk about the fact that God's land promise to Israel was forever. In other words, they should have that land forever. And that's why some are expecting the Jews to be able to stay in Jerusalem and there to be this, this new kingdom that's going to come back, interestingly, the Jehovah's Witnesses really view it as forever, as in eternally, just like God is eternal, whereas the, the premillennialists most of the time typically view it as just till the end of the world, that there ought to be this kingdom that will last through a thousand-year reign to the end of the world. What does this word really mean? I believe both of those doctrines are based on a misunderstanding of how this word is used throughout Scripture. The word that's used here... In the Old Testament, for forever or everlasting or perpetual or permanent or several other synonyms along those lines is the Hebrew word olam. 
And yes, it can be used at times to refer to, literally, eternally. For instance, in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 33, Abraham planted the tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. When we talk about God being everlasting, I think the Bible demonstrates that it is literally eternal. From eternity past to eternity future. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6 demonstrates this. In Isaiah 44 and verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And there is no God beside me. My understanding of that is that God was there before everything else and God will be there if everything else were to be destroyed. He's eternal. His name that we talked about in our Bible class here in the auditorium this morning, Jehovah, meaning I am, just self-existent. It just always has been and always will be. And certainly, the term olam is used in the Scripture at times to refer to, literally, eternal. However, I believe when we survey the use of this term throughout the Old Testament, we'll find out that just like we use the words forever and always to mean relative things, this term, meaning forever or always, was also used relatively throughout the Old Testament. Allow me to demonstrate some things. Some things that were called forever were said to be perpetual or permanent, and yet we find out in the New Testament that they clearly were not. For instance, we've got in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 13, as God establishes His covenant of circumcision with the Israelites, He says, This is My covenant, which you shall keep between Me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Thus shall My covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But look in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, we find out for those who would become Christians, in Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 3 and 4, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Circumcision was to be an everlasting covenant, and yet when the new covenant came in, God said if we go back to that old covenant and try to make circumcision a part of keeping a covenant with God, we are fallen from grace, we are severed from Christ. So this everlasting covenant was not literally everlasting. The Bible demonstrates that it came to an end. This is not the only concept that we see dealt with in this manner. We can go to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14. Now this day, now this is talking about the Passover feast. And there's this passage and there's numerous others that deal with the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the, all the types of festivals that they would have under the old law. But notice what he says. This day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Through your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. We can look at Exodus 31 and verse 16. And we have, so the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath, to celebrate the Sabbath through their generations as a perpetual covenant. Same word is used there. But look in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Once we come under the new covenant in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, Therefore... No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, which refers to those feasts we were talking about moments ago, such as the Passover, or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. God says now, through Paul, there's, there's no one to judge you about this. This is not, you don't have to keep these, this everlasting covenant, this perpetual covenant of the Passover or of the Sabbath day. Don't let anybody judge you 
regarding that, because those were a mere shadow of the substance which has come in Christ. And so this everlasting and perpetual covenant of festivals and Sabbath days was not literally everlasting or perpetual unto eternity. Another example. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. He says, All these things that are revealed in the law, they're ours forever to follow. Supposed to follow the law forever. Let me look at a sister concept here. Numbers chapter 25, verses 12 through 13. You'll remember when the Moabites got the Israelites to turn away from God and to marry those foreign women and they went into harlotry spiritually and physically. And then Phineas, you remember the story when one of the Israelites took a Moabite woman and went and just jabbed the spear right through them as they were in the midst of their indecency. And God promised him, as the son of Levi, he said, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him, a covenant of a perpetual priesthood. The law and the priesthood of Aaron, the priesthood of Levi, coming through Phineas, were going to last forever. And yet, remember Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12? Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12. We'll back up in verse 11. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. Here is a perpetual covenant of priesthood with Levi through Phineas, the perpetual covenant of the old law. And yet here in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12, it points out that both of those things have Changed. We're no longer under that old law, and we no longer are under the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitic priesthood. We are under the priesthood of Jesus Christ. I continue on. And in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 34, as it talked about that annual day of atonement sacrifice, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, when they would sacrifice and offer the blood on the altar in order to atone for the soul. Remember, we talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago. In Leviticus 16 and 34, as it talked about that annual sacrifice, it said, now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once Every year. It was a permanent statue using that same word, Olam. It's supposed to happen every year then, from now until eternity. But we're back in Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we find out that this was not literally eternal. In fact, we know that the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ has put to an end this annual atonement sacrifice of bulls and goats. Hebrews chapter 10 makes this abundantly clear, beginning in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why are they supposed to do it every year? Because it wasn't really taking away the sins. However, beginning in verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. This perpetual statute of the atonement sacrifice, the annual every year, in the seventh month, I believe it was, no longer done. It's not our sacrifice. Not literally forever. A few other interesting examples here. You look at Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 23. The King James Version really demonstrates this better than the others because it, it demonstrates that the same term is used at the end of the verse. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter the congregation of the Lord forever. Well, which is it? Is it forever or is it to the tenth generation? This demonstrates to us that the concept of forever, the use of this term was relative. Long time mentioned here. Or another passage, Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 through 6, very interestingly, as it talked about becoming an indentured servant. A slave who was a Hebrew would only be enslaved for six years, and then in the Sabbath year, the seventh year, they would be freed. However, if their wife and child was there and had not, uh, had not fulfilled their seven years yet, the wife and child stayed behind. So the slave may say, whoa, I don't want to leave. I want to stay here. I love my master. I love my wife and my children. I'll not go out as a free man. And then it goes on and explains what they should do. But by the time it was done, he shall serve him permanently. However, once he died, he quit serving him. All it meant here was till the end of his life. Another example of that same kind of usage is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 22. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I'll not go up until the child is weaned, then I'll bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Now, some might suggest, well, Samuel is still in the presence of the Lord, but that's not what Hannah's saying. Hannah's talking about appearing before the Lord in the tabernacle. And Samuel only did that until he died. And yet she said it would be forever. Full well knowing all she meant was for the rest of his life. Very interestingly, one more set of passages I want us to notice. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4, "...the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old." Using that same term, olam, "...men of renown." He's saying, look, these guys are on the earth forever ago. But it doesn't literally mean forever, because, because of course, forever ago, the earth wasn't even here. It's just saying a long time ago. Another passage that uses the same way, Joshua 24 and verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times, from old times, your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. These Forever ago. He says, kind of the way we might use that. What we find is that the use of this term olam is just simply a relative term. Sometimes it does mean literally everlasting. Everlasting in the past and everlasting in the future. Sometimes it might refer to the concept of to the end of the world. Sometimes it might refer to the concept to the end of the age. Sometimes it might refer to the concept of to the end of our lives. Sometimes it might just simply mean some long, undetermined time. And that's the way it's typically used, relatively, just like we do. And it's relative to the circumstance or the situation that's being discussed. For instance, if... Oh, man. David, we didn't go to Walmart today. We went to Bilo. But I had to wait forever 
for Marita to go in and buy just a few things. Now, would you all say I was lying? Because, I mean, I'm here now. It hasn't been forever. But we use the term that way, don't we? You know, forever when we're talking about just some individual circumstance. David was going to ride home with us today until he found out we were going to Walmart. And that really would have been forever. But we decided we didn't want to wait that long, so we went to Bilo and only waited half of forever. But in that kind of circumstance, you know, forever may simply mean 30 minutes. But you understood that a long time. However, we might talk about something in a, in a much on a bigger scale and say, well, it took them forever to get started. Well, just all we mean is a couple of months. Or it took forever to get that accomplished, and all we mean is several years. The, the Israelites, back as we were talking in our adult class, probably felt like they'd been in Egypt forever, but they only were there for 400 years. It's a relative term. And so when we look in these passages that are part of our question, Genesis 13 and verse 15, Genesis 17 and verse 7, Ezra chapter 9 and verse 12, we recognize that these passages are talking about the covenant that was made to the Israelites. Talking about the covenant that God had made with them. And when it's talking about it being a perpetual and everlasting statute, God is simply saying this is the way it's going to be as long as this covenant lasts. But even in that old covenant, He had pointed out that there was going to be a new covenant. And there was going to be a change. Jeremiah chapter 31. By the way, you may want to write this one down because I didn't think about this until this afternoon to add in here so it's not in the outline. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and on their heart I'll write, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And he goes on, and he describes this covenant. And Hebrews chapter 8 refers back to this passage. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 7. He says in Hebrews 8 and verse 7, If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And then the next several verses, he quotes from that passage in Jeremiah 31. But then down in verse 13, Hebrews 8, 13, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. He says ready to disappear because there were... Israelites who were continuing to do what the old law said, the sacrifices, were continuing to take place, even though they weren't doing any good. But that was all about to disappear in the destruction of Jerusalem. When the records of the priesthood were lost, when the ability to sacrifice before the temple of God was gone, and he says, but that's all obsolete now. And so when referring to this issue of the covenant with Abraham, and referring to the issue of the covenant with the Israelites, when he says forever, he doesn't mean literally forever. He means till the end of this covenant, to the end of the age. This is the way it's always going to be until that new covenant is established. That's what he means there. And so when the premillennialists want to turn to these passages and say, all this means the Jews ought to have the land forever, literally, till the end of time, which, by the way, is not literally forever, but that's what they want us to believe. No, what we realize is, no, that's forever till the end of the covenant. When the Jehovah's Witnesses want us to believe that the world is supposed to stick around forever, literally, no, it's forever until it comes to an end. Which is a long time. And we don't know when. But that's what God meant. And so, it's not a, it's not a contradiction for some passages to say the world will be here forever, and other passages to say that the world's going to be destroyed because of the way this term is used. It's used relatively. It means a long period of time relative to whatever circumstance you're dealing with. Hope that helps. Question number two.
Somebody's trying to get me in trouble by asking this question. They want me to dig into your pocketbook. But I figure we all need it anyway, and so we're going to ask. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, and Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, the Christians sold their possessions to help those in need. With all the needs across the world today, how accountable are we going to be in regards to all the material blessings we have? First of all, let's go to those passages and read them quickly. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 44, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Then in Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And then it goes on to get an example of Barnabas and, of course, the example of Ananias and Sapphira lying about doing this very same thing. What does this mean about our responsibility today, especially with all the blessings that we have? Before we actually answer what our responsibility is, there's a couple of caveats I want to provide so that by the time we're done, nobody says, well, what about this or what about that? Hopefully I can, can, can avoid that by just making these few statements so that you won't misunderstand anything I say about giving as it regards the work of the church or taking care of those in need. The very first thing is, as you look at these two passages, in Acts 2 and Acts 4, I think we need to understand that this was about brotherhood relief. It was not about general benevolence. This is not an issue of the Christians deciding to sell off everything they had and just give to the poor in general. This was about the brotherhood needs. Now, I recognize Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 points out in Galatians 6 and verse 10, So then, while we, on an individual level, have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I recognize that you and I as individuals have a responsibility to do good to all people. However, I want us to learn, first first off, that these passages in Acts 2 do not teach us that we have to sell everything we own and distribute it to the innumerable charities that we find across the world today. That's not what it's saying. It demonstrates the unity and the care that these brethren had for one another. And so let's recognize that. The second thing we need to learn is from Acts chapter 5 and verse 4. Acts chapter 5 and verse 4. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 4, Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, remember when they had lied about what they had sold and given, he said, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? The thing that we need to recognize is this was not communism. I don't know how many people I've heard say, oh, I had that early church, it was a communistic society, they sold off everything they had. And no, that's not, exa- that's not it at all. Communism says that you have to sell it, it's not yours, it belongs to everybody, we're just going to make sure everybody's on an even playing field. Peter said, no, it was under your control. This was actually capitalism with folks that were just loving and generous. And so when they had blessings, they would share with others. But here's the key that we need to understand from this. Your finances are under your control. I cannot give you and I cannot tell you a number, an amount, or a percentage that you have to give, whether in the contribution or generally in dealing with needs that others have, whether brethren or otherwise. I just can't give you that kind of figure because your finances are under your control. God hasn't drawn a line like that. There's sometimes I wish that He had. I think it, it might have been nice, maybe, that we could just say, 10%, that's it. 
But I think there are reasons God doesn't draw those kinds of lines in many areas, and that's about us growing. Just like we talked about this morning, that we would excel still more instead of camping out at a line that He drew in the sand. He says, your finances are under your control. The third caveat I want us to find is in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The blessings that you have received financially and materially are given to you first and foremost to provide for those within your family and your household. God has not ever expected anyone to sell and sell and sell and give and give and give until they finally themselves become the needy of material and financial relief. That's, that's not what God has ever intended. So we have to keep that in mind, first and foremost, taking care of the family. That's why God has given you those blessings. So don't feel guilty about that. That's the, that's the number one responsibility He's given you by giving you, the, giving you these blessings. And then the final caveat we can find in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning at verse 18. Solomon writes, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. Ecclesiastes 5.18 To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. I do want you to understand that God has also blessed you with material and financial blessings so that you can enjoy them. Therefore, I do not want anybody, whatever I say today, to go away thinking that you should feel guilty if you have any pleasures or any enjoyments or any entertainments just beyond the absolute barest of necessities. Because that's not the case at all. God has given us the blessings to take care of ourselves and to enjoy them. But that's not where it ends. So I, want to, I just want to get those caveats out of the way to understand, kind of to govern everything else I'm about to say. I'd like to share with you just a few passages that you need to keep in mind. Remember, I cannot provide you with an amount or a percentage or anything else regarding how you ought to give, whether we're talking in the giving or, or your own charitable work with brethren or otherwise. But there are a few passages that I want to share with you that I think you should consider as you're trying to figure out how accountable God will hold you. The first is Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. I want you to notice this new creature that we're supposed to be now that we're Christians. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28 provides the extremes from being out in the world and being in Christ. In Ephesians 4.28, Paul wrote, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? So that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Those who are in the world are all about taking from others and bringing themselves. Now that we're Christians, we're a new creature. The blessings that God has given us, He's given to us so that we can, yes, take care of our family. Yes, enjoy them, but to share with those who have need. That's the kind of new person we are, the generous person that's not hoarding things to ourselves, but distributing them out to help our brethren and to help others who are in need. Yes, we're allowed to enjoy the things that God has blessed us with, but we have to keep in mind that we've got to balance that. We've got to balance our own personal enjoyment with the needs of others around us that we can share with them and help them. And so, if there are others that are hungry that we can help and we're not helping, 
then most certainly we ought to feel guilty as we're eating at our five-star restaurants or even just at McDonald's. If there are folks that are destitute and without clothes and we can help them and we're not helping them, then yes, we ought to feel guilty as we wear our designer labels. Because God has given us these blessings to be able to share with others. It's not just about us. The second passage I'd like for you to consider is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, I know that Paul there was talking about the contribution, but of course in Acts 2 and in Acts 4, I believe those were issues of contribution. Further, here in 1 Corinthians 16, the contribution was specifically for relief of brethren down in Judea because of the famine they were dealing with. And here Paul says now, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. So that no collection to be made when I come. When it comes to our giving, when it comes to helping others and sharing with those who have need, it's going to be based on how God has prospered us. The person who's been prospered more certainly ought to be the one who gives more. The person who's running his own company that's making all kinds of money every year, who, I'm not just talking about all the self-employed people. I know Steve's about to get mad at me. But you know, these guys own these big companies that they're selling on the stock market for thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars because some investors come along and want to buy it up and all those, you know, they're just rolling in the dough. They're probably going to be able to give more. They ought to give more than the ones who are working on the McDonald's salary. You know, the sad thing about it is in our society what we actually find is that those who make less typically give a higher percentage than those who make more. Making more money does not seem to improve anyone's charitable giving across the board. It just doesn't happen in our society. But we Christians need to be different. What we find here is that the principle found in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48 applies, and that principle you'll remember is that to whom much has been given, much has been expected. And we need to keep that in mind. Another passage I'd like for you to think about is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, the Scripture says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Because you tell those who are rich, don't put your hope and your trust in those riches. I've given you those riches so that you can be a blessing to others. And you need to share, because by doing that, you'll store up riches in heaven. God hasn't given us our riches to hoard to ourselves. And I recognize, as I look out over this auditorium, that for most of us here, we're at various levels. And typically, we just compare ourselves with one another here. And some of us, we say, well, actually, most of all of us say we're poor. You know, it's amazing. We live in the richest country in the world, and yet every single one of us spends most of our time trying to convince everybody how poor we are. Uh, and, that's, and, and no matter how much money we make, that's what we do. Compared to one another, some of us are rich, some of us are poor. But do you realize that compared to the rest of the world, just about every single one of us are among the richest in the world? Just about every single one of us are far richer than the folks to whom Paul was writing. I mean, you realize, if they were to look at us today, why, well, you've got a, a chariot. Every single one of you have a chariot. Some of you, too. And it'll go without any horses. 
I mean, that's an amazing thing. You all have piped-in entertainment. You can listen to music and symphonies and watch plays anytime you want to just by flipping a switch. Well, you've got the, you've got the microwave oven servant. You know, you don't, you don't have to have somebody cooking your meals for you because it happens that fast. You've got the Maytag washer and dryer. Well, that's just as good as the servant going down to the, the creek and washing the clothes for us. I mean, that's, they, they, man, you guys are just absolutely rich. That's where we are. And we've got to be honest with ourselves about that. What does Paul tell us? Don't trust in those riches. Share. Help others who are in need. As much as we have opportunity, that's what we're supposed to be doing. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 5-8. through 8. Paul, again, writing to Corinthians regarding this collection that was being made for the saints in need in Judea because of the famine, says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. I know I read down a little further than I had here. What Paul is saying is, be bountiful. Did y'all catch that in there? Well, every other word was bountiful almost, it seemed, for the first couple of verses there. Your bountiful gift. You promised me a bountiful gift, so I'm sending somebody to make sure it's going to be a bountiful gift. And you better sow bountifully, because if you sow sparingly, you'll receive sparingly. Now, I am not about to teach you the health and wealth gospel. I am not Robert Tilton, and I am not, or, or Benny Hinn, and I am not going to tell you, boy, if you give your seed faith... Of $5, God will return that to you a hundredfold, as though giving is some kind of investment to increase the size of your retirement account. That is not the case. However, let's just be very honest with what this text says. This text says, if I sow bountifully, I will reap bountifully. This passage says that when it comes to our finances, we have got to walk by faith and not by sight. What this passage says is, is that when we are generous, when we share and give bountifully, God will bless us bountifully, but not, not so that we have more. Rather, what Paul points out is that when we are bountiful in our giving and in our sharing, when we have learned the lesson that these things have been given to us, that God has blessed us so we can be a blessing to others, he said God is going to bless you all the more so that you can be a greater vehicle of his blessing. When you walk by faith and not by sight, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. When you give and you share, God is going to take care of you. And the one who provides seed for the sower, He's going to give you everything you need in order to continue being a blessing. And of course, we need to recognize that there will be times when we can be a great blessing to others And there will be times when we need blessing from others. Even Paul 
pointed out that He had gone through times of abundance and times of want. And we've got to be ready for that. But in all of those times, we've got to be willing to do our best to share and serve and give to help others. So the bottom line is this. I can't give you an amount, but I'll give you one more passage that should govern what you do. And that's Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. You know what it says. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I'll tell you, one of the big problems that we have today, one of the things that Satan is using to pull us away from God is the distraction of earthly riches and physical and material needs. And he gets us so focused on that, we are so worried about security and retirement and keeping up with the, the Joneses. Not these Joneses. That uh, sometimes we just become distracted from serving the Lord. And what he says is, you've got to seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. And what that's going to mean is sharing with others because God has blessed us. And what that's going to mean is giving because God has blessed us. What that's going to mean is sowing bountifully as we have been prospered, doing it as we've purposed in our heart, recognizing how great God has been to us, and using His blessings for His purposes. That's why He's given it to us. Not to use for our purposes, but for His. And yes, His purposes are taking care of our families. His purposes are even that we're allowed to enjoy some of it. But we've got to remember that when God has blessed us, He has blessed us in order to be a blessing to others. And we've got to pass that on. And that'll entail the contribution. That'll entail things that you do on your own, privately, with brethren and otherwise. But that's the responsibility that God has placed on all of us. If we go before God in heaven and we've trusted in our riches, we've hoarded them, we've held on to them because we're walking by sight and not walking by faith, we're going to be in big trouble. But no matter how much we've made, if we've been generous, yes, enjoyed what God has given us, but shared with others as we've had opportunity, giving bountifully, then God will bless us. And that's all I can say. I hope the answers have been helpful to you tonight. Second Sunday night of the month, we do this every month. If you have questions you want dealt with, as I said earlier, you can email them to me. Or just make sure you point out on there that it's about the second Sunday night of the month. Or you can fill out the form that's in the back and you can put it in the inbox, put it in the, the box that's assigned to that purpose outside my office. I hope the answers to this lesson's questions were beneficial to you, helping you understand the use of the word forever in the Old Testament in relation to the world and Abraham's covenant, and also helping you understand your responsibility as a steward of God regarding the material blessings he's given you. Remember, God hasn't given you those blessings to hoard, but to share with others. Perhaps somebody gave you this CD. If so, let me invite you to come to our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons that you're free to download, both in audio format and in outline format. Download those, use them in any way that you see fit in order to glorify God and share His gospel with others. If you have any questions about these questions and my answers, if you have questions about how to serve God, about how to become a child of God, please contact us by calling 615-794-2359 or you may contact us through our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. 
May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.